Hey guys, welcome. Is everybody holding up okay? Awesome. Hey, well, some speakers you got to like, you know, um, kind of help the crowd understand who they are. Not so much uh, here, okay? <laughs> but I would just tell you, Gary, I, I mean, I've not told you this, but uh, personally, there was two books uh, that Pam and I read and reread um, early on in our marriage, and Sacred Marriage was one. And uh, in my copy, um, you know, it had multi, you, could, you can go back and see uh, the different ink and, and um, you know, pencil and, and things like that where we'd read it through uh, multiple iterations, and it really just kind of framed the way we thought of marriage and served us really, really well. So uh, Gary's an amazing guy. If you don't follow his blog, uh, I'd encourage you to do so. There's always some great, great stuff uh, in there, and um, he's just a real servant of the Lord, great guy. I won't take any of his time, but would you guys put your hands together, please, and welcome Gary Thomas. Thanks, John. Well, I'm, I'm glad we're getting started early. I'm trying to fit 75 minutes of material into 60 minutes here. So I need sort of a fish and loaves type of formation, if you'll pray with me that that will happen. Second thing, it's always um, awkward, usually before I talk on sex to a group. We've gone through sessions about God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy, building a history together, whatnot. It just seems kind of rude coming up and talking about this right at the start. Uh, but we're all in marriage ministry, presumably here, so we can just uh, jump into it. And so with that, let's just do it. Father, I just ask that we could be equipped in a world that lies about sex, that distorts your, distorts your creation. Father, that we could capture the power, the glory, the, the truth, the occasional ecstasy of this experience. We could understand why you made it, how we can usher others into this to be a blessing in their life and not a burden. We just pray for your spirit to be very present with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Chuck Colson told a true story about a grandmother who was baking cookies with her granddaughter. And the granddaughter said, Grandma, how old are you? And the grandmother said, Honey, when you get to be my age, you don't tell anybody how old you are. I said, Okay. Ten minutes passed, and the grandmother noticed that the granddaughter was missing, thinking, I really better kind of find out where she is. So she starts to look all over her house, finds the granddaughter in the grandmother's bedroom, on the grandmother's bed, with the contents of grandma's purse spilled out all over the bed. And the little girl is peering intensely at grandma's driver's license. So grandma walks in, and the little girl says, Grandma, you're 73. She goes, that's right, honey, how did you know that? She goes, well, I looked at the date on your driver's license. She looked back at the driver's license and said... I see you also got an F in sex. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> I, I think particularly talking to people involved in marriage ministry, just about every premarital couple I talk to, just about most of them feel like at some point they got an F in sex. And, and so they're going into marriage with a whole load of baggage bringing in that feels like it's already holding them back. And, and here's what makes sex so difficult to talk about even within the church. When you think about it, it's a unique experience that represents both the high highs and low lows of our lives. It could be some of the highest moments in our life when we feel more alive, more pleasure, more like a person created with nerve endings in a real fleshly body, more connected to an individual, feeling closer to an individual that, that maybe we've ever felt before and then what it can create with life and our children all the meaning it can have spiritually I mean it's just amazing 
And yet for many, if not most of us, it can also represent moments of our greatest shame and regret and guilt that if we were given 10 do-overs, these events never happened. For many of us, they would be sexual in nature. And so when we have the same experience that can represent the high highs and the low lows, it could sort of rip our psyches apart and it's, it's difficult to talk about. But we've got to talk about it in the church because I believe the church is the place where we can help couples build lifelong, i.e. long-term sexual intimacy. And that's really the focus of this. We've got to focus it down on what we're going to talk about, but the power of sex over a lifelong marriage, because that's the challenge. It's sort of like it's easy when you're infatuated to keep the emotional relationship going. You don't even have to work at it. It just is, and it tends to boil. Same thing when sexual chemistry is strong early on. It doesn't take a lot of work, although mechanically there might be some issues. But if we want to enjoy each other through our lives and serve each other and really explore the power of sexual intimacy, that's what I believe uh, the church is particularly um, needed to do. And that's because one of the real challenges, and you all know this, but one of the real challenges of maintaining long-term sexual intimacy is a spiritual challenge because of the way sin affects our relationship. In one sense, you could look at the marriage bed as the sewer of the marriage relationship. Now, I know that's a disgusting analogy in one sense, but let me explain. If there are spiritual ills, Uh, Anger is a huge one. Disrespect, condescension, bitterness, resentment. Eventually, those spiritual ills will find their way into the bedroom and affect the physical relationship. And I believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of grace, repentance, forgiveness, restoration, is really the only way where two sinners can live intimately in a marriage and still forgive each other and and, and give each other the grace and experience forgiveness and repentance so they can keep desiring each other in in the face of their sin. The world looks at an entirely different angle. I think it's why you see the silly things like the Fifty Shades trilogy and the movie that comes out as if what we need is a new position and a new thing and a new place to touch. Look, when you're talking lifelong marriage, you run out of places, new places to touch. When you're talking about a lifelong marriage, you can only fit into certain positions at a certain point in your your body's growth. And so it's got to be more than that. But see, that's the world's perspective. It's always the how-to instead of the heart-to. And when we know it gets to sex, it's so often more the heart-to than the how-to. How do we maintain that motivation? Um, otherwise, we end up with the situation like this cartoon where marriage is, sec- is where sex goes to die. Wanda, honey, wake up. Hmm, she says. I got the kids to sleep. Is that so? And I'll bet you woke me up for a really special reason. You bet. You're on the remote. <laughs> Younger guys aren't going to get that. That's all too familiar for middle-aged couples, but... But how do we keep this from happening? Again, it's not a lack of knowledge. It's a lack of the heart. Here's an analogy. I was uh, spoke at a church one time, sacred marriage. They had me come back, do a second marriage conference. They had me come back, do sacred parenting. So I really got to know the pastor to the point he became a close friend. We'll talk even when I'm not going out there speaking. And so he called me up over the last conference and said, Gary, we want to try something new. There's this bed and breakfast about a block and a half from the church. I thought you could just spend the night there and then walk over to the church in the morning and in the evening. 
Now, usually I'm an inveterate people pleaser. When somebody says me something, I'll say, okay, I'm just trying to please him. But he's a good enough friend where I felt I could be honest. And I'm not a big fan of beds and breakfasts. Uh, in my experience, beds and breakfasts were created by women for women. I mean, you just <laughs> got another. I, mean, I, I walk in and there are 12 pillows on the bed. I, I don't know what it is about women and pillows. The more, the better I get. Because I, I don't know which one I'm supposed to use. When Lisa's with me, she'll tell me. But I don't want to solve a jigsaw puzzle to go to sleep. You know, I just want to put my head down. And then you go into the master bathroom, and that's a minefield. She goes, no, Gary, those are decorative towels. You use these towels. Oh, Gary, that's decorative soap. It's carb. Well, it's right by the sink. No, you use this. It's just too much hassle. And then when you're there to work, I mean, they have knickknacks and bric-bracks all over the room. And I mean, I don't get it. They have, always have these bowls and the pitcher. We've had indoor plumbing for 150 years. I, I guess I'm supposed to be nostalgic for this drawback. I don't know. And so I have to clear that off. But then my laptop's still on a doily, which really doesn't put me in the mood. So I said to him, look, an economy hotel is fine. I don't need anything fancy. He said, well, actually, it's being donated. And I don't want to offend him. I said, look, if it's not costing you any money, it's fine for me. And so I spent that weekend there. And I was there by myself, except for a couple on their honeymoon. Now, this was a small bed and breakfast. The owners didn't live there. They just came in in the mornings to cook breakfast. It was old style. Three rooms. Uh, there's one room I was in. The other two rooms right across the hall. No carpeting. Uh, gaps between the floor and the door and, you know, single pane windows and whatnot. Old style. So I do the Friday session about to drop off. The door slams open down. And this two couple comes up. These wooden steps right outside my door. Shakes me awake. Hear the door creak right across the hall and the bride squeals that, well, they like their room. That's wonderful. A few more minutes pass. There's another squeal. Okay, she likes more than her room. That's fine. (laughs) A few more minutes pass and I say to myself quite stupidly, well, I'm glad they got that over with. I was thinking like a guy married 20 years, which I was at the time, because I I was thinking, you know, when you're married that long, you sort of go out and you kind of get that out of the way. And then you actually go do things, right? You, you go to a bookstore, you go out for ice cream, you take an occasional walk. Instead that weekend, I went to two movies by myself. I never go to movies on speaking trips. I went out for ice cream. I was just kind of creating some space. Now, That was about a decade ago. So if they were to come to a sacred marriage conference now, it wouldn't surprise me at all if they might give one of the most common questions. What do you do when one couple desires sexual intimacy more frequently than the other? I can tell you, it's not a matter of the how-to. They have that down. Unfortunately, I know they know how to do it. But the question is, will they maintain the heart to? And I'm not suggesting that we act the same as 20 years, 30 years in the marriage that we do as newlyweds. But the question is, can we still enjoy each other? Can we still put as much enthusiasm and forethought? And why does it so often drift off? Because the fact that couples do tend to grow lukewarm in this area concerns me. And one of my big points in this talk is that I want us to care about our sexual relationship as much as God does. And that sounds bizarre to some people when they see a guy who's on staff with a Baptist church saying, I want you to care about your sexual relationship as much as God does. They think they care a whole lot and God has nothing to say, but they don't realize just how much it matters. So 
what do I mean when I, I say that? Let's just look at the biblical witness and the physiological witness. And I know a lot of this is just secondhand. I don't mean to be talking down, but it, it's helpful for us to be reminded, to, to put it in this context. When we think about it, the most stunning fact we find is that as important as prayer is, there isn't a single book in the Bible devoted exclusively to prayer, is there? As important as our finances are, there isn't a single book in the Bible devoted exclusively to our finances. When you think about it, there's really only one book that has one central focus, and guess what that book is? The Song of Songs. And do you understand where that name comes from? It's an ancient Near Eastern idiom that, well, you're familiar with King of Kings, right? What, what does King of King means? It means that God isn't just a king. It doesn't mean he's just the strongest king or the greatest king. It means if you were to put all the kings of the universe together, God would be the king of those kings. He's, he's a different king in kind. He's without parallel. That's what that phrase means. So when the inspired writers of scripture create a poem that celebrates the erotic relationship between a husband and wife, what is the title? This, not, not, not just a good song, not just a great song, not even the best human song we could think of. It is called the Song of Songs. It's creation at its pinnacle point in the sense of what it speaks of spiritually, what it speaks of between husband and wife, the fundamental foundation of human society, the pleasure, what it does for the relationship. All of those things put together, it says this is really at one point the the high point of human experience when we can feel most human, most alive, and in many ways most reflect the Shekinah glory. I mean, just without saying a word of the poem, the title alone speaks so strongly to us. But of course, it has much to say. You get in just to the first nine verses. Look at Song of Songs, chapter one, verse nine. Husband says, I liken you, my darling, to a mare harnessed to one of the chariots of Pharaoh. Now, this is rather explicit given the time period. It doesn't seem like that to us today because we've lost the historical underpinnings. And what I'm about to say, let me preface it with a gross-out alert. Um, I want to stress, I didn't write this sentence. There's a book table downstairs where I'm accountable for those. I'm just telling you what God said here. But in this historical context, they all would have known mares never pulled the Pharaoh's chariots. The Pharaoh was like a king in a game of chess. If he's lost, the battle is over. If he's got to get out, he needs the fastest horse. He needs the strongest horse. But here's what they discovered, and here's the gross-out alert. If they would harness a mare to the Pharaoh's chariot, not so that she's pulling, but she's just kept in close physical proximity, the physical proximity of the mare to the stallions would whip them into a sexual frenzy. And they discovered that sexually excited horses run farther and faster than horses that aren't. And so it's really a picture of a husband saying, I feel more alive. I'm more engaged in life. I can do more. I can be more because of this fulfilling sexual relationship that you and I are in. 
And in many ways, I think that's the biblical picture of God for marriage, what it does to a man, and we'll see ultimately what it does to a woman. Studies show, particularly for men, but also for women, there's a direct one-to-one correlation between frequency of sexual intimacy and their satisfaction in their marriage. It, it studies show they're, they're more engaged with their kids. I believe they're going to be more successful in their job. And I would even argue they're going to be better prayers and worshipers. But here's the sad truth, and this is why your ministry is so important. The reverse is also true. If I wanted to destroy a man, if I wanted to spiritually cut his feet out from under him and wreck his life, the first thing I would try is to sow a sexual addiction into his soul. And it doesn't matter what kind. Strip clubs, pornography, extramarital affairs... They'll all do the trick because what happens, what God created to unite husband and wife now becomes a wall between husband and wife. Instead of something that they share, it's something the husband has to learn to hide from his wife or the wife hides from her husband. And here's what's so devastating about that. Men, we cannot be intimate with women we are lying to. Intimacy, by definition, is being fully known and accepted and loved. And if we're having this whole area where we hide, it becomes a character stamp on the relationship. It's not something we turn on and off. We will find ourselves hiding and lying about other things because it becomes a part of who we are. So it trains us to pull away from our spouse, to create distance from our spouse. The reason this is a big thing for me is that I'm, I'm the third of four kids, very limited in my abilities and gifts. I'm always, I've always been insecure, uh, still am to this day in, in so many ways. And what amazes me, one of the most healing things about marriage for me is that my wife literally knows me better than anybody ever has or ever will, and she still likes me. <laughs> She still even respects me. And it just, I can't tell you what that does to me as a man. We got together in a restaurant one time. There was another younger couple there. And Lisa was the last one to arrive. And I hadn't seen her all day. I'd been at work. And she just kind of scooched up to me. It was November. And the other wife said, oh, you cold? And he said, no, I just, I just really miss him. I haven't seen him all day. We'd been married almost 30 years when that happened, and I felt like a king that just because my wife was away from me for the day, she couldn't wait to scooch up and, and, and say hi. But here's the thing. If I'm hiding from her, instead of that fulfilling me and giving me a sense of meaning as a man, it would terrify me. I'd say she likes me because she hasn't found out about X. She respects me Because she doesn't know about Y or Z. So what am I going to do as a guy? I'm going to double down on the deception, aren't I? I can't let her find out about that. Because then I'm going to lose what means so much to me. And you gradually see sex pulling two people further and further apart. And it will destroy a man's role as a father. One man confessed he just felt awful that he had, in trying to cover up his tracks on the internet, had been inadvertently covering up his preteen son's tracks on the internet. And so his son was far more involved in that kind of destructive behavior for a lot longer than he should have been because of the husband's own sin. He knew he had failed in part as a father because of his own thing. And where it came to a head for him one time was when his wife and kids had gone out shopping or something. 
He started to give in to the temptation. And I don't know what happened. The store closed or something, but they came home much earlier than they said. He was in the middle of giving in. He's trying to shut everything down, cover everything up, potentially catastrophically embarrassing moment. And he finds himself cursing under his breath because his family has come home. And, and here's the thing, just as an empty nester, I've been an empty nester now for almost two years. Nothing saddens me more than the thought of cultivating a habit that would make me curse my wife and kids walking through the front door. And I don't think there's a single man that dreams of becoming that kind of man that that that's what he's saying. My wife and kids are home. But that's Satan's end game. That's how he's preying on them. He's going to give a little bit here, but that's his end goal to make family become a problem of sexuality instead of an expression of sexuality. Now, I got to say this to people in this room in particular. As a pastor, I grieve for our 20-something men. Look, I have worked with these guys and they have been preyed on by the porn industry. I feel sorry for them more than I feel angry. I love the Lord with all my heart. When I was growing up, I was baptized at an early age. But if you'd told me at 12, click on this and you get to see what a naked woman looks like, I'm glad I didn't have to face that choice. Click on this and you get to see what that mystery of sex is like. I, I, I don't like my odds. And some of these young men will do that click and they didn't look for it. It came in front of them and they get sucked in and they try and they try. It's not a fair fight when you throw that stuff in front of a 12 year old. And so in the midst of recognizing the danger, I hope we can have a nurturing attitude that I think God is angry that his sons have been entrapped and he feels compassion for his sons. Some of them good, strong, Christian young men, but it just got a hold of them. They created neurological grooves. I, and it's more I'd like to say on that, but I, I, I just can't. I, I've seen it almost destroy men's jobs when it becomes obsessive and compulsive. How can they pray? How can they worship if they close their eyes and their minds are filled with those past images? So we see the stakes. God creates this amazing gift that helps a husband and wife be rejoined in intimacy, that helps a husband be more settled and the wife more settled in their home, protecting the kid's security, frees up the husband to succeed in his vocation so he's not compulsively doing things he shouldn't be doing, gives him a free mind and a clear conscience to pray and worship and meditate. And Satan says, I'm going to take that same thing and I'm going to turn it around and use it as a weapon to create a wall between husband and wife, to pull him away from being actively engaged as a father to make him fail in his job because that's just what Satan does. He doesn't want anybody to have a meaningful life. And by all means, don't let him pray. If he sees his heavenly father, he might repent and we might lose him. And so the same thing that God created for so much good, Satan uses for so much evil. And the reason I'm willing to get this sober and why I think it's so important what you do, sex will bless a man or it will ruin a man. But often it goes to those extremes. And so what I see happening is when sex gets a little difficult after sexual chemistry has died down and it's not clicking and the relationship starts to get broken and the sexual relationship suffers and a husband is tired of being humiliated and I'm not blaming the wife at all here. Dynamics can be multiple, multiply different. But what happens is they just both let it go 
And I've seen, I, I can picture a man, very successful businessman. He knows how to raise revenues, cut costs, set up a plan, but he didn't know how to be intimate with a woman. And so when the relationship got difficult, he wouldn't humiliate himself. He threw himself in the office. He said, I can live without her. I can live without sex. And he did for a while until who God made him to be, a sexual being, rose up, got into an affair, and he's sitting across my desk, can't look me in the eye. His wife is picking Kleenexes out of the box like a five-year-old with a Pez dispenser. And you're wondering, can we keep this family together. And it would have been such a different discussion if they would have come to me after five months of no sexual activity instead of eight years followed by an affair. It's just an entirely different thing. But sometimes Christians even say, well, we can't talk to our pastors or counselors about not having sex or sex becoming boring. That seems so worldly. And so they think they can live without it. And I'm just saying few do. When I'm working with a couple and I find out they're only having sex maybe once a month. My assumption is the husband's doing something else on the side. If, if he's at a certain age, that's probably not the only sexual experience that's going on, which means month by month, destruction is happening in his soul in multiple areas of his life. That's why I want them to care about their sexual relationship as much as God does, because God sees the stakes. He sees Satan's endgame. Now, some might say, well, this is pretty sobering, but you're suggesting it's just about that. I mean, what if it's about Genesis 1, be fruitful and multiply? I mean, God's really into kids, and maybe that's why he's so into sex. Fair enough, but how often is pregnancy and conception mentioned in the Song of Songs? Not a single time, not once. It endorses that relationship explicitly for the pleasure that the couple gets and the meaning that the couple gets. And other scriptures do the same. Proverbs 5, 18 through 19. May you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be captivated by her love. Now, I know I'm not the smartest person in this room by far, but I'm intelligent enough to know it doesn't take a pair of breasts to conceive a child. I mean, once a child is born, they come in pretty handy, all right? You're taken off on a plane, late at night, the child is hungry, plug the baby on there, time of intimacy between mother and child, good thing. But it has nothing to do with conceiving the child. The Bible here is clearly endorsing sexual love play. And by the way, that word breast in Hebrew is more specific than breasts. They just don't want to translate it that way. You can use your own imagination there. And it's saying this in the form of a blessing. May your breasts ever be captivated by her. That God designed that. In fact, two Old Testament commentators describe that word captivated as a morally permissible love ecstasy. It's a picture of a man who was all but struck dumb by his wife's naked body. She's stepping naked out of the shower, slipping naked between the sheets. At that moment, it's, it's all he sees. Nothing else exists. He doesn't know if he's a poor man, a rich man, a successful man. All he knows is his desire is right there. A nuclear bomb could go off next door. So honey, I'm sure it's nothing. I mean, he's just, he's focused on where he's going. And the Bible doesn't prevent this as perverted, but as a holy thing. 
It's a wonderful thing. Now, you wives will never get this because you don't have a man's mind. But, but I can tell you, I, th- th- these words are true. I, just last year, my wife and I were in California. And early in the morning, we got up. And I was going to go for a run. And Lisa was going to walk. And it was a trail. We were just visiting. I said, look, honey, if you're walking, I want to make sure you carry a cell phone. She didn't have hers, so I gave her mine. So I went. And I didn't know the trail. And it ended much sooner than I wanted it to. So I doubled back and saw Lisa before too long. I'd had some thoughts in my mind. I wanted to write them down in my phone so I could think about something else. So I stopped, said, hi, honey. Hey, can, can you give me the phone? I need to make a couple notes. She goes, oh, sure. And she'd been carrying it in her jog bra. And, and she handed me that phone and I, I can't explain. <laughs> I've had this phone for over a year. I've been married to her for 30 years, but I'm fascinated by this little piece of plastic just because of where it is. I'm like, whoa. She goes, what? I go... I don't know. I mean, I just, it's just different. I mean, I just, and, and again, the Bible says God wants us because it does something wonderful when it resets the balance of power in a marriage. When a woman knows she has that control over her husband and she's desired and cherished like that. And it does something wonderful to make the husband so vulnerable to his wife that way. It's God's creative design that it should be that way. And, and, and so it's, it's, it's a wonderful passage where the Bible just says um, that is, is, is so key. And, and then going on to Song of Songs, chapter 5, verse 1. Eat your fill, O lovers. Be drunk with love. Now, Song of Songs is notoriously difficult to translate. It's not chronological. It jumps here and there. And and every translation has four headings. Lover, beloved, God, and friends. Those aren't in the Hebrew. Those are added by later translators to try to help you understand what's going on. Some versions will put friends over this passage, which I have a problem with because it's literally a picture of a couple making love and I'm not sure it's a biblical picture of friends looking over saying, hey guys, have at it, have a good time. You know, we're rooting for you. I, I go with the translators that put God himself looking at two people he has made, a husband and a wife, enjoying each other as he designed them to enjoy each other. And God himself is saying, what? Eat your fill. Oh, lovers, feast on this moment. Be drunk with love. God himself telling them to give themselves over to this moment. Now, the physiology of how God created us backs this up. Satan had nothing to do with the design of a woman's body. Nothing. When God was putting the woman together, in fact, you can almost say from Proverbs 5, well, God put this, he said, this is going to enthrall her husband. And then God goes a little ways further down when he takes a female sexual organ, while the male sexual organ has a couple of different functions, the female sexual organ has just one, and that's sexual pleasure. And God says, if I put this here, that's going to enthrall her. I mean, God could have made sex as painful as giving birth. And that would have solved some social issues when you think about it that we face. 
But, but he wanted it to be immensely pleasurable. Now, why this is so important to talk to women, we need to help them understand women, it means something. When you understand that God with his 100% perfectly holy mind was designing you, he put this here just so that you could enjoy sexual ecstasy. And if you have to work to experience that, if you're one of those women, it takes a while for you and your husband to to, to get everything together. If you have to study it and read about it and work at it, that's a holy desire because all you want to be is who God designed you to be. You want to be fully functioning as a wife. We've got to remove that guilt. This is a good desire. It's a holy desire because if you believe sex is as important as God believes it is, Look, we all know that we can do certain things because we think we're supposed to. And that's entirely different from doing things that we really want to do. And a woman and a husband can get together and they understand how pleasurable it can be. It's a whole different experience from the wife just giving in so that the husband doesn't sin. That's such a reduced negative view of sex that we just, we we need to get beyond that. But sometimes... Because there are a lot of sex negative messages growing up and and churches have difficulty addressing it because in Sunday morning you've got all kinds of ages and so pastors feel hamstrung in how direct they can get. Uh, You know, sometimes women, when they've said no their whole life, it's hard for them to say yes when they're married and then when it doesn't work. As marriage ministers, you've got to remove that guilt. And there's some great books out there, particularly for women, helping them to understand that All they want is what God created them to enjoy and helping them to see really it's the best gift you can give your husband. I mean, it's our male pride, but if we see our wife exhausted, panting, we're like, thank you. I did that to her very much. I mean, that's, that's just sort of our approach, but we sometimes just have to help younger Christians get to that point that this is a biblical and a holy thing that God doesn't turn his eyes when a married couple goes to bed, it, it, it's not sinful, it's not shameful. When you think of him calling the relationship the song of songs, when he compares a sexually fulfilled man to one of Pharaoh's stallions pulling the chariot whipped up into a sexual frenzy by a mare, when he talks about being uh, a morally permissible love ecstasy, when he talks about feasting on passion, being intoxicated by sexual desire within marriage, does that sound like a God who has some reticence about sexuality? Or does that sound like a God who's saying, I hope you guys can figure out what I've given you. I hope you can understand the power and the purpose and why you want to keep it going um, throughout life. So how do we help couples begin to experience this. I want to just suggest two things. This is not exhaustive by any means, but both of these kind of go against society's common view of sex. So I think it's helpful for us to address them. The first thing is that this form of sex where it becomes life-giving when its power is released is when it's all about giving. In the world's view, sex is all about getting. And that's the whole pornography industry. And it's the predatory mindset of so many of us as men and now increasingly young women where we're dating. How much experience can I get? Can I push the envelope? And, and, and we develop this predatory, am I going to get any tonight? 
And the problem is when we know of neuroplasticity, I don't have time to get into that. I know a lot of you are familiar with that phrase. You start to govern your natural reaction to something. It becomes your default habit. And so when we have years of a predatory attitude towards sex, that it's something just to satisfy ourselves, even though now we go into a holy context of marriage, we don't have a holy attitude. We have a predatory attitude. And where that undercuts lifelong sexual intimacy is that while it might be fun to be hunted now and then, it gets old after a while. Eventually the wife wakes up and says, well, what about me? What about us talking about a sexual experience that can be fulfilling for me or the focus can even be on me? The, the real challenge here is to understand the, the dynamics of power because that's what giving undercuts. It used to be, 20 years ago, a guy or a woman like me that would be up here speaking on sex, would talk about husbands chasing their wives around the kitchen table, um, tended to be that men would desire sex more often than their wives. There's some physiological reasons for that. But if you have your eyes open at all, if some of you are therapists, you know this, that the percentage of women with a higher sex drive than their husbands is increasing like it never has before. Now, there are a lot of reasons for that we don't have time to get into, Um, But here's what I found. Whoever wants sex the least has the most power in bed. That's the challenge. Whoever has sex the least has the most power in bed. And it comes from this. Anything I deny my wife becomes an absolute denial. The only sexual experience she can enjoy is a sexual experience I choose to give to her. If I say the store is closed, there's no other store she can shop at. If I say you can shop on this shelf but not that shelf, that becomes absolutely forbidden to her by God's decree. And so anything I deny her becomes an absolute denial. And that old adage about how absolute power or power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely as is true in the marriage bed, as it is in the halls of Congress or the back rooms of Wall Street. And so when we intuit this power, when we're confronted with this power in marriage, we have to realize we need to baptize this power that sex has to remain about giving, not paying back, not manipulating, not settling past scores. We have to learn to handle power like Jesus handled power in John 13. This is an astonishing passage. John 13, of course, is Jesus at the Last Supper. And as John sets it up, he does it perfectly. He has this phrase where he says, Jesus, knowing full well all power in heaven and earth were under his feet. Not, excuse me. This is going to be loud. (laughs) I didn't want to do that to you. Thank you. John said, Jesus got up knowing full well all power in heaven and earth were under his feet. Not some power over one spouse, for instance, like we deal with, but all power. And yet, how did Jesus get up to show his disciples the full extent of his love with that power? What what did he do at the Last Supper? He washed the disciples' feet. And, And we know from that passage that Judas was still present when Jesus was washing their feet. A man about to betray Jesus to a torturous and cruel death. And Jesus is literally kneeling in front of his betrayer. And I can barely describe what happens next. Because 
Jesus takes the two holiest hands that have ever existed. The hands that your and my salvation hang upon. The the hands that were pierced so that our sins could be dead. Jesus took those hands and he's rubbing the dirt off Judas's feet. It's stunning. He knew Judas was going to betray him because he dismisses Judas in mere moments. Can you imagine Jesus kneeling in front of Judas and twisting his ankle or tweaking apart his toes saying, I know what you're going to do. We laugh at that. And so that tells me whenever I have power over my wife, whether it's power of the tongue, she needs someone to talk to, power of the purse, how we're going to spend money, power of my schedule, where I'm going to spend my time, or power of sexual interest and desire, it has to be to build her up to serve. She doesn't have to earn it. In the midst of betrayal, Judas is, Jesus is loving Judas. It's, if I'm given power, it's to call her and invite her into relationship. And when we understand sex that way, it takes a huge turn. I want to use a quote from Dr. Archibald Hart, who helps women kind of understand what's going on when he says this, and I think you have this on your outline. Immediately after being sexually satisfied, the normal male may be able to focus elsewhere for a while. But it is just a matter of time before his thoughts lead him back to sex. And I'm talking about the preacher as much as a truck driver. Sure, the average man thinks of other things like football and politics, but eventually all mental roads lead back to this one central fixation, sex. There are times when the obsession fades and even vanishes. Give him an intense challenge at work. Let him buy a new computer or sports car. Give him a golf bag or a fishing trip. He'll forget about sex for a while. But sooner or later, like a smoldering fire, it will flare up again. Strong, urgent, forceful, and impatient. The sex drive dominates the mind and body of, would the wives please read the next three words with me? Every healthy male. Like it or not, he says, that's the way it is. Now, I asked the wives to read those three words with me to stress He's not talking about perverts. He's not talking about men foreign to the Holy Spirit. He's saying every healthy male, if he's operating the way that God physically and spiritually designed him to operate, he has another way for me to describe this. He has what we could call sexual windows. Now, every man has a different window. I, I don't know how God created your husband. For some men, it might be every 24 hours. For some, every 48 or every three or four days, once a week. I, I don't know. But, but once a man is pushed past that window, sex becomes almost a fascination to him. He lives in a different world. He, he walks around and, and if this is where he stumbles, all of a sudden he can't help. He just sees breasts everywhere he goes. He's, he's not even having to look for them. It's just like they put themselves right in front of him. He could be driving by a billboard that he didn't even notice two days before. Suddenly, it's like the woman on that billboard has a leash and she yanks his chain, says, look at me, notice me. And it is just a different world because he's been pushed past that window. And the only place that window can be reset in a healthy, holy, God-honoring way is in the arms of his wife. Now, I, I'll be vulnerable with the wives here. I used to resent this. 
I didn't know the physiology behind this when I was a new husband, but I knew the reality. And, and I, I didn't like being vulnerable to my wife. I didn't like her potentially having that power over me. I didn't want to sin against her. I didn't want to sin against my God. And I remember pleading with God one time, Lord, just take sexual desire for anyone else away. If it's a matter of self-will, drop a red button from heaven. I'll push the button. I'll willingly give up my self-will. Just, just take this struggle away. Here's why I think I was spiritually sick in praying that prayer. I was looking at sexual desire through the lens of the fall, as if, God, as if Satan had created it to cause me to stumble. But when I began to look at sex through the, crea- through the lens of creation, I'm sorry, when I began to look at sex through the lens of creation that God designed it, that God created me with the body that he's given me, that there has to be a divine purpose I've never looked at sexual temptation in the same way again when I look at those hormones. I'm not saying God is tempting me, but here's what I mean. When you scope out a male and female brain, you'd find out that a female can have up to 10 times more oxytocin than a male brain. Oxytocin is a loyal bonding chemical. It creates feelings of warmth and affection. It's why women tend to bond more quickly with their children It's why if you see two women in a Starbucks and one is really distressed, they might be peering intensely into each other's eyes. The other woman might even be patting her hand. You don't usually see two guys in a Starbucks sitting like that. I mean, women, it it, it tends to be more them. There's only one time in human experience when a man's level of oxytocin begins to reach that of his wife. And guess when that is? Immediately following a sexual encounter. He bonds to his wife in a way that he can't anywhere else. And and I think that's why Dr. Hart says, like it or not, that's the way it is. Uh, Women, why do your husbands want to have sex with you so often, whether they want to or not? They will never feel closer to you than immediately following that experience. Now, I get why you might resent that. You might wish he felt closest to you just after he fixed the garbage disposal or came home from work and spent 45 minutes talking about his feelings that his boss had disrespected him but he's getting in touch with his father wounds and really growing in his understanding of who he is but look I I didn't create your husband God did and and what this means men and we've talked to our wives it is God's creational providential design that we be vulnerable to our wives in this way He wants them to have this power over us. Now, here's where I think God is so brilliant in allowing this, even though I resented it as a young husband. When I talk to new brides after the wedding, gone through premarital counseling and whatnot, a common thing that's so frustrating to them, six months in, a year in, there's just something about the male psyche. I got the girl, what's the next challenge? We get married, suddenly throwing ourselves into our job, throwing ourselves into our hobby, our vocation, whatever it is. And and the wife feels terrible. Look, I I was number one six months ago and now I'm seven or eight. God knows this. He is passionate about our wives because our wives are his daughters. He loves them with a passion. He doesn't trust me out of my selfish altruism to cherish and treat his daughter as she should be treated. So he says, Gary, I'm going to create you with these hormones that if you start ignoring my daughter, the world is going to be a different place for you. 
And you're going to know there's only one place where that can be reset. And if you want to catch a clue at all, for your wife to be sexually intimate with you, you've got to be relationally connected. Even better, you'll be spiritually connected. You'll be praying with her and over her. And, and so God has given me a physiological compulsion to stay close to my wife. So sexual desire, sexual temptation now signals, Gary, are, are you getting too distant from your wife? Are, are you putting work or kids or a hobby Ahead of your wife. God has created us men to be vulnerable with our wives. That's what it means to look at it through the lens of creation. What I'm saying is that desire matters. But when we understand the physiological and spiritual purpose, desire shouldn't be a tyrant. Uh, Wise couples work to cultivate desire. But sometimes we realize we just need to as a couple. There are a lot of things that we operate with this way. I mean, I... I loved my kids, never desired to change a diaper. Not once did I wake up and say, boy, I hope they have a big five pounder for me this morning so I could show them the full extent of my love. But I knew they needed that to be cared for. And that's a terrible analogy with what we're talking about. But but, but here's what I want to get couples to a place. Ask yourself honestly, if God looked at nothing other than my sexuality, He doesn't look at how I spend my money, how often I pray or study the Bible, how often I share my faith. If all he looks at how I treat my wife, his daughter in bed, would God say, well done, my good and faithful servant? Or would he say, Gary, how can you try to worship me when you're a predator toward my wife or you're making something a burden that should be a blessing or burying her with this or that? How does God look at me as his son by how I treat my wife, his daughter in bed? And I wish every Christian would pray that because we've got to be tuned in that our marriage isn't just about us. We're married to somebody so intimately connected to God. He has their concern. And and if we're leaving them hanging or if we're taking what should be a blessing and making it a burden, how painful that is to our heavenly father who created such a wonderful gift that we can give to our spouses. But but when I talk like this, sometimes husbands will come up and say, Gary, I, I really like where you're going. I want to give that gift to my wife, but she won't unwrap the present, right? And that tells me something. Because if sex is about giving, it has far more to do with quality than quantity. It means that my sexuality is to be finding out what's fulfilling for my wife and meeting those needs. And, and, and so often, men, it begins long before we get into the bedroom. One wife said to me one time, Gary, if my husband would just pray with me, he wouldn't be able to handle me in bed. So he'd be crying uncle long before the night is through. And what she's saying is, before you touch my body, touch my soul, and I'll naturally melt. That's a positive expression. A negative expression was when a wife said, Gary, I'd love to have this kind of relationship with my husband, but here's the problem. Everything I do is wrong. I don't cook right. I don't drive right. I don't clean right. I don't raise the kids right. So I know he's criticizing me in bed. I just can't bear there to be one more area where I'm disappointing a man that can't possibly be pleased. And the issue there isn't that she doesn't want to have sex. She really does. She just doesn't want to be criticized. And so when I'm running up against an issue like that, I'm trying to ask myself, what's killing the canary? What's killing the canary. And here's what I mean by that. 
Remember, old-time miners would keep canaries down in the bottom of the mines because they didn't have the sophisticated instruments. And canaries' lungs were so tiny when poisonous gas began to seep from the walls because they'd opened up a bad vein, the canary would immediately die and the guys would know we got to get out because we're all going to be in trouble. And, And so rather than talking around the issue is saying what's killing the canary what's killing sexual desire is it a lack of a positive thing you're not connecting relationally you're not connecting spiritually is it the presence of a negative thing is there a critical spirit is is there a problem with anger is it not about giving is it about taking or whatnot and and so but you're just trying to figure out what is it that's making us not want to function as a couple who enjoys each other and serves each other and and gives to each other. And then finally, with, with, with 10 minutes left, I, I, I got to stress this because if we don't get this, everything I've said will be undercut. And this is what the world laughs at. Christian sex is built on a radical exclusivity. It's built on a radical exclusivity. The Christian ethic, no sex before marriage completely faithful sex mentally bodily after marriage is often seen as unnatural it's increasingly ridiculed by comedians by Hugh Hefner Chelsea Handler and others look I I don't like being contentious but I think sometimes as a church we've got to stop being embarrassed and throw it back and I would say to Hugh and Chelsea how do you know You've never tried it our way. You don't know the power of an initial sexual experience with a woman that you're committed to for life and and experiencing that with her throughout all of life and the children that result from it and, and how you know each other so well and how 30 years in, if you could have one sexual partner in the world, you would choose your wife and you can choose her that very night with no games and no power and no shame. They don't have a clue what they're talking about because they've never done it our way. But some that have done it their way have great regrets. Will Chamberlain caused headlines when he said he'd slept with 20,000 women or 10,000 women. I don't know. The math is difficult either way. (laughs) But they didn't quote what he said after that. It would have been better, he said, to sleep with one woman 20,000 times. We don't have to be ashamed or act like we're missing out because see the world's cues this whole thing about 50 shades of gray when you're talking about look i i don't like creating do's and don'ts that the bible doesn't create okay so i'm not i i I don't want to go there too much but just when you've got to have pain like that to get excited neurologically that becomes a point of tolerance. And so you've got to increase the level of pain to get the same pop and do that. And when you're talking about a lifelong sexual relationship, you can see you're going to run out of nerve endings to cause their hurt after a while. I mean, and the same thing happens with pornography. Sometimes couples will get into that and for a while it will give a pop to their relationship, but it can do something to the guy. All of a sudden the wife starts to think, how come he needs to see her to get excited about me? It, it can be this, it's like throwing newspaper into a fire. You get this big flare up, but I'm concerned about a lifelong sexual relationship and these tricks that the world throws at us. It says we need to experiment with. What happens is that they just burn up like that paper and then you're left with something that's dead. And, and, and so we don't have to be ashamed 
of the power that, that God has given us. I was just in Saskatoon last weekend and they're asking about experimentation and, and other, and I just said, look, we have two people that love each other and cherish each other and know each other. The way God designed sex is pretty good. <laughs> I mean, you think about it. I mean, wh- why do we have to, yeah, I, I, I got to be disciplined with my time. Yeah, I, I, I've made that point. So here, here's what's going on. What's the stereotypical sexual sin for a guy? Isn't it to be a voyeur? Uh, pornography and all of that. And, and according to the Bible, the stereotypical sexual sin for a woman would be to be an exhibitionist. The Bible tells women to be modest. It doesn't say that to men. There's a reason for that. But here's what's going on spiritually. We have to understand the spiritual dynamics to get this. A man who chooses to become a voyeur is saying to himself, it's not enough for me to desire a woman. I want to desire women in general. I'm going to take sexual interest from women. I'm going to let my mind roam, my thoughts roam. I'm going to go wherever I want on the internet. I just want women in general to fulfill me sexually. What does that mean by definition? He becomes a sexual predator in his attitudes and in his thoughts, and it'll stamp the way he treats his wife in bed. And a woman who chooses to become an exhibitionist is saying this spiritually. It's not enough for me to be desired by a man. I want to know that I'm interesting to men in general. So I'm going to act in a certain way. I'm going to dress in a certain way. I'm going to talk flirty in a certain way. I want to command that sexual power not to balance the power of my marriage with my husband. I just want to know I, I have meaning because I can get other men excited. What happens is that we have a finite amount of that energy and we expend it out in the streets. We stop needing each other. We stop being desperate for each other. And I believe God designed marriage to work best when we're both vulnerable and generous as husbands and wives. Vulnerable and generous. That's the power of of sex because it's the power of satisfaction. And when we're vulnerable and generous, what happens? Oxytocin is released. We're rebonding as a couple regularly. Our kid's home is secure. We're we're free to, to succeed in our vocation because our window is set. So it's not a compulsion like sex or strip clubs or some aberrant form of sexuality. And it just does a wonderful thing. But to get this power, we have to tell husbands, we have to tell wives, you've got to be radically exclusive. I've been a lifelong fan of sports. Started subscribing to Sports Illustrated from the time I was a little boy. And the issue arrived. um, It gradually grew. It used to be part of the magazine. Now it became the entire magazine after the Super Bowl, before spring training camp opens up. The swimsuit issue that has... Women are 98% naked or 100% naked and painted and all of that. You can now not get that issue. That's, you can probably that on a subscription. But I'm, I'm a person of routine and habit. And Sports Illustrated would come usually to our P.O. box. I would usually always pick up the mail and I just have my habit. I would leave the mail in the kitchen. And Lisa would go through and deposit the checks, pay the bills, give me anything to read or letters to answer. And one year I saw Sports Illustrated in there. Didn't think anything of it. Just leave it in the kitchen. A couple days go by, I went down to my office and this was draped over my keyboard. It's Rick Riley who used to write the back page column for Sports Illustrated. And my wife walked into my office a couple hours later and I held this up and I said, honey, what's this? She goes, oh, that's the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue. <laughs> so it seemed a little thicker than that when I pulled it out of the mouth. But, but here's... What, what I like, I, I don't take 
this as a threat, but as a promise. Gary, we have something special going. But don't ask me to try to compete with these genetic freaks of nature from Iceland and Central Africa. And that, I mean, guys, I just want you to realize what our wives have to face. A couple hundred years ago, which is most of civilization, women had to compete against maybe 12 women their age in their village. Seriously. Today, because of the internet and movies and magazines, these genetic freaks of nature at a particular age are brought forward and they're supposed to be what we desire and it's all a lie. I began praying. I don't know why I prayed this prayer. I put it in sacred marriage. I I hadn't heard anybody, but when I got married, I said, Lord, let Lisa define beauty to me. Let her be the picture of what's desirable in a woman. Guys, you think God doesn't want to answer that prayer? You think God wouldn't go to a husband and say, no, no, I want you to be attracted to somebody that looks entirely different than your wife. I I believe God is real. I I believe when it's a God-honoring prayer, and he did. And to this day, if a woman attracts me, it's because something in her really reminds me of Lisa. And and here's, here's the joy in this. My definition of a beautiful woman has aged over 30 years. So what does that lead to? Satisfaction. As a pastor, you know what I've never seen with a man struggling with a sexual addiction? Satisfaction. He never finds one magazine, one site, one picture, one stripper, or even one mistress, frankly. It's this compulsive never can be satisfied thing. That's what's really going on. And and so let's put it this way. This is why it's so important. Let's say Lisa decided to cook one of my favorite meals for me, perfectly cooked steak, baked potato, small salads. I don't feel too guilty about it, right? And I didn't know she was cooking me this great meal. And so an hour before I'd had a bag of Doritos and peanut M&Ms and maybe a Pepsi. So I'm all sugar sick and junk sick and all of that. And Lisa puts this work, and she's so excited, and I know she's worked hard, and I, and I, I want to act thankful, so I'm like, oh, thank you, honey, I was so hungry, and this is so good. But Lisa's been married to me for so long, she's, she's going to know. She's going to look at the way I eat that steak, and she's going to say, he's been snacking. <laughs> and why should I go to this great effort to cook this great meal if he's off snacking? As ministry leaders, guys, one of the best things you can tell the men that you're working with, their wives know when they're snacking. When you're at a restaurant and your eyes, you see, if if my eyes are roaming when I'm not with my wife, neuroplasticity, my eyes roam when I'm with my wife. And it's a slap in the face. What I'm telling her is, you know that feeling when you were growing up that you weren't quite pretty enough? They were true. Because here I am with you, you're my wife, you're the mother of my kid. Oh, and, and we don't think of that as hurtful to them. But see, when we're vulnerable and generous, when I'm generous with my desire for my wife, when I'm generous with my focus for my wife, when I'm cherishing my wife, she feels built up in a world that has such a stupidly narrow view of what beauty is supposed to be. In this last issue, maybe it was last year's issue, I don't know, Sports Illustrated, there was a woman who had been in it nine issues in a row, and the other models called her grandma. If you're a grandmother in nine years, what happens when you've been married 30? 
And, and, and so by, by generously desiring my wife and focusing my wife, I'm bringing healing to her in the midst of a culture that tears her down and hurts her sense of worth and beauty. But I got to train my mind to get there. And, and I would say to the women who are going into these uh, the, the novels and whatnot, although some do go to the pictures, but they're more likely to go to the novels. Take that time and energy and desire and create a real life sexual experience for your marriage rather than escaping to the fantasy. Because if you use the fantasy as a release valve, you don't need your husband. And most of us, if we don't need our spouse, we get more and more distant from our spouse. So this radically exclusive is so important for us. To focus. If, if we don't, if we don't, I, a therapist told me it would happen and it did. A young man in his 20s, fit, in good shape. I saw his wife, just adorable, reminds me of one of my daughters. I mean, she's just cute, adorable. Any guy w- would think she was attractive. Finally confessing to me, all things considered, he would rather take care of himself in a back room than sleep with his wife because that's what he had trained himself to desire, and it was devastating to his wife. And, and so we've got to be radically exclusive or all this spiritual power of sex I've talked about is, is undercut. So, so what does that mean? Let's, let's be intentional. I've got to end with this because I'm doing the debate after this. If this is the case, if we understand the spiritual power of sex, if we understand the biblical purpose and celebration of sex, that we're to care about sex as much as God does, if we understand it's about giving, if we understand that we have to be radically exclusive to, to preserve that power of being generous and, and vulnerable, we'll be intentional about unleashing that power. We have to make it happen. There's something about kids, I, I gotta tell you, when they become toddlers, if they get two or three together, they, they start to talk. I don't think they say this consciously, but they have this attitude. We must never let them have sex again, all right? They might conceive another rival. There's enough of us. So tonight, you have the nightmare. Tomorrow, you get scared. Uh, you get a cold. You have a friend stay over. I mean, they just conspire. We will never let them have sex again. And we have to realize, you know, sometimes we just have to take charge. When my wife and I were on a cruise with my parents, they took us from my dad's retirement some years ago. All the extended family uh, went on this Caribbean cruise. We were in an interior cabin with my two daughters. My son was with his cousins. And you know those interior cabins? They're like the size of this stage, probably smaller. You're sleeping 20 inches away from your daughters, and they were a little bit too old for us just to pretend they could sleep or maybe not know what's happening. They have key cards, so we can't really lock them out. And it was just frustrating because you're on this romantic vacation. You're taking off from Miami. The sun is setting. You're in your beach clothes. It's tropical music. We, we wanted to act like a married couple at least one time on this cruise. We had watched my, my brothers and sister siblings uh, and, and nobody had reciprocated. And, and though I'm very frank with you, it's not my family of origin style for me to go to my, certainly not my parents or even my siblings and say, hey, Lisa and I got to have sex at least one time on this boat. So did you watch our kids and come back and pretend you don't know what happened while we were gone? So it's the last full day of the cruise. We're just coming back and we're just thinking, this, this is crazy. So we hatched a plan. There was one restaurant. Kids had been wanting to go for some time. It was called Johnny Rockets. Hamburgers, hot dogs, milkshakes and whatnot. And it was the only restaurant with a line. So remember, the girls had key cards. So I got the kids in line. I said, now kids... 
Your mother and father have an errand to run, which was true. So I want to make it clear. You won't leave here until we're back, okay? Because if you try to find us as the line moves forward, you might go up those stair steps. We'll come up these and you'll miss it, and we'll lose our place in line. And aren't we all really hungry? I said, all right, fine, we'll stay. So now if you get to the front of the line, I want you to go ahead and take a booth and save it. Don't try to find us because again, we'll meet each other and then we're never going to be able to serve. And it's mixed. So I just want to make it clear. You will not leave this restaurant until we're back. Is that understood? Okay, we got it. I thought for a moment. Now, if you're done with your meal, <laughs> it'd been the whole cruise. We didn't want McDonald's, right? I go, you get any dessert you want. You want a milkshake. You want a banana split. I will buy you this boat. If you just promise me, <laughs> you're going to say, okay, yeah, we got it. And here's the thing. When, when that happens, I treat my wife differently. I make my living speaking on marriage. I I wish I could tell you just out of cynical wanting to keep my vocation alive. But it is just different. It's involuntary. When I realize the spiritual power of this and the purpose that God wants me to be vulnerable. He wants me to be generous. He wants me to cherish my life. The good things it does. I, I feel like I've only touched on it here. But I think it's enough. I hope at least that we'll realize We can't let sex die in our churches. It's difficult for pastors to talk about it. Sunday morning is not the right time. It just won't work because you've got younger kids and whatnot. But we've got to find a way to work with pastors to say too much is going on in this pornographic world to pretend that we can ignore this issue and that it will be okay. Let me pray. Father, I just want to ask your blessing on each leader here. I know, Lord, the potential families they could reach could number well into the thousands. And so I pray that you would gift them. I pray that they could take these few small seeds and create plants in their church that will feed and shelter and nurture their entire church and the communities around. Lord, take these thoughts. Let your spirit increase them, build upon them, launch new ministries, improve existing ministries, and glorify your name, that the church could become more honoring of what you've given us to honor in the sexual relationship, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.